Our reading today comes from Mark 3, 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew and his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around. Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed so many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain and called him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Logging on with us, my name is Evan Skelton. Welcome to the service of Bayless Baptist Church, this worship service. That's all what we're doing. We're offering worship to God who deserves it. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. And so I would ask, again, if you, that if you do have a Bible, go grab that Bible or maybe click there on your phone. And there, again, if you're having trouble finding our passage, you can look in your table of contents. Mark is one of the Gospels, the four Gospels, that come in the, in the uh, last third of your Bible. And I do hope you keep your Bible in front of you today. I can't tell you, though, how much I wish I was in person with you. Again, we have decided to err on the side of caution while I wait on some test results from some COVID symptoms that I was experiencing. We particularly want to love well those who are at high risk in our church, including many of our elderly members, but also we want to love our community well, recognizing that some of you may have made a different call given these circumstances. We are in such strange times. In fact, I'm feeling pretty good, but that could be just the ibuprofen talking, so we'll see how this goes. But I actually am really, really excited. This message is so important, gets right at the identity of our church, why we gather, what a church really exists for. And I cannot wait for you to discover with me what God's Word has to say about who we are because of what Jesus has done. So I hope you will keep your Bibles open. But before I get to our passage, I want to remind us how the Gospel of Mark works. You see, this book, even though it's called Mark, actually it's called the Gospel according to Mark, isn't about Mark at all. John Mark, the writer of this, even though he was a uh, one of the most significant missionaries the early church ever saw, one of the first Christian converts to Christianity, Rather, this book is about Jesus, and it was written to Christians, it seems, who were desperate for hope. You see, faith in Jesus, when people began to confess faith and become converts to Christianity, it didn't make their lives easier. It made them, in many ways, much harder, particularly for the Christians who were in Rome, who were receiving this book. Perhaps this book was written to. Now, many who were coming to believe to believe in Jesus, and again, more and more every day were, still many continue to reject Jesus. And many of those, in fact, many of the loved ones of those who were in the early church, 
many of those who were initially attracted to Jesus began to slowly drop off. How were the early Christians supposed to make sense of this? Christ had since ascended to heaven and told them that they would be doing greater works, and yet it seemed so much stood in the way of the future or even the very survival of this church. How were they to make sense when some of their loved ones began to drop off? I tell you what, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I've seen this too as a pastor. I can't tell you how many friends I grew up with who seemed to be at one point in their life so passionate for the Lord. And, and then they just dropped off. Some of them, they just become, became kind of meh to Christianity. That's perhaps the majority. But then there were others who just turned angry and bitter towards the church. Some of us, we've carried quite a bit of church hurt. Some of us are convinced, like many of my friends were, are, that their days as a Christian were the dark days of their life, that, that when they put Christianity and resolved to put it behind them, it was like that they had finally grown up, they had come of age, they'd left childish things back there in the past. So why does this happen? Why, particularly, do we see some who were initially so attracted to Jesus begin to drop off. It turns out that Jesus experienced this as well in the days in which he was preaching. And the passages and passages like the one that we are going to look at today not only helped the early church as they were reading these events make sense of their own heartaches, they made an enormously important distinction for us, a, a distinction between the crowd and the called. It's actually how we're going to split up our passage today. We're going to look at the, our passage in um, two pairs of three marks. Three marks of the crowd and then three marks of the called. You ready to get to work? Let's begin with the very first of these. Three marks of the crowd. Now, do you remember any weird trends growing up? Weird trends that you grew up with? I certainly do. I remember how many, and maybe you've experienced this as well, some trends absolutely polarized people. Um, it could be uh, parachute pants, maybe uh, mullets, maybe beanie babies. I'll tell you one that I remember particularly growing up, Napoleon Dynamite. I don't know if you've seen this movie, but when I first saw this movie, I have to tell you, I walked out and I wondered to myself, what in the world do people see as funny in this movie? In fact, over the next few weeks, I made it kind of a source of pride to say I really didn't like what everybody else liked. I wasn't swept up with the crowd like they were. We have many of these trends that can be absolutely polarizing, right? You know, in the first century, though, there was no more polarizing figure than Jesus. He wasn't exactly well-liked by everybody. In fact, over the last chapter in Mark, it seems like Jesus just can't catch a break. He's in one fight after another. It seems in many ways that he's provoking these fights. And we can, in, in fact, walk away wondering, does anybody even like Jesus? But in Mark chapter 3, we find out that it's not just the hostility and the fights that are increasing. It's actually the crowds that are increasing as well to an almost shocking point that we're going to find as we closely read our passage today. You could say, in fact, that the hostility from the religious leaders increases because the crowds are increasing to such a size, because the crowds were, crowds were finding in Jesus something that they had never found anywhere else before, including in their religious leaders. 
And so at this point, Jesus has become one of has become the most influential teacher in Israel in anyone's memory. John the Baptist, he came maybe a close second. He had made a splash among the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea. But Jesus was now gathering people from 50 to 100 miles around. People were coming from over 100 miles, many days' journey, just to see Jesus. And this was in a day before highways, before public transit. You can imagine what work they had to do to just see Jesus' face. And we find that these crowds are not just made up even of Jewish people. They're made, made up of many Greeks and even Gentiles. A diverse and dynamic crowd gathered from all over the country to see this Jewish miracle worker. All attracted to him in a mass, in a crowd. The question is, why? Because they have to see if the rumors are true. It's actually the first mark of the crowd. The crowd comes, the crowd comes because it desires what Jesus offers. The crowd desires what Jesus offers. I want you to imagine with me, first picture in your mind's eye, the person you love most in the world, or one of them, maybe your kids, maybe a spouse. Maybe a significant relationship you've had in the past that you've lost since. Imagine that person is with you, but they're very, very sick. And every doctor you have seen has told you the same thing. You, there's nothing we can do, and there isn't much time left. Then one of your friends reaches out to you. You see, there's a doctor in their city that not only has been treating this condition for some time, this doctor has discovered a treatment with a 100% success rate. And this success rate, um, this, this, uh, this treatment not only has such a significant success rate, but it's so unpopular at this point that he's willing to cover the costs of the treatment out of his own pocket if you will simply make the trip. You find out that it's going to take you at least three to four day journey just to see this doctor. But let me ask you, what would you do for the person you love? When you were out of options, if you were out of options, what would you do next? I think many of us can forget that these people, in many ways, are just like you and me. These people we're reading about, even though they th lived thousands of years ago, they had dreams for the future. They struggled to make ends meet. They worried about their kids. They longed for life to be different. Some of their sorrows they thought would never change. Until Jesus shows up and it seemed the very things that they thought would never, could never change, all of a sudden begin to change. The rumors begin to work their way throughout Israel. The crippled are walking again. The terminally ill are standing to their feet. The spiritual forces that they have lived in constant fear of upsetting have been silenced, silenced in front of everyone. They begin to ask themselves, could, could this be the one that we heard about, that God told us was to come? We, we had given up hope for him, but this, could this actually be that God is coming through on his promises? He sent the one that is going to heal what is hurt, that is going to fix what is broken beyond repair, the one who would make everything sad untrue. And if so, they need to see him now. 
Let me ask you, what first drew you to God? What first drew you to Jesus? What, what first drew you to his church? If you're a part of this church, what, what first caused you to show up, walk through those doors? You know, some of us, I know, came because we were trying to give our marriage another shot. And this seemed like the best, best way to make that happen or because we, we'd lost something, a job, a loved one in our lives, a career, a, a dream, and it, it left us reevaluating everything in our lives. Some of us are trying to make a clean break with addiction or some of us are wanting just some sense of stability and hope in the midst of our really crazy world. Still, some of us came because we're searching for answers. We're, we're searching for the truth, for relief, for friends, maybe somebody to spend the rest of our lives with. How many of us came to church because we needed to see, are the rumors true? The crowd is attracted to what Jesus offers. It always is. It's what's draw, what draws them. What they see in Jesus, like so many of us, is someone who promises to fix what I need very much to be fixed. But then I want us to notice something else about the crowd. Number two, the doesn't just desire. The crowd demands what Jesus offers. I think some of us have this image of Jesus who's just serenely sitting in a meadow, who is teaching to crowds who are in rapt attention, and maybe he has a hand on a little child and on the head of a little child, and then he has a hand slowly, just, just so sweetly stroking a little lamb. You know, we, uh, this doesn't seem to be the case actually here at all or ever when we see Jesus. In fact, certainly not here. Notice this, a significant portion, think about it, a majority of the crowd, potentially, has come to Jesus. Why? Because they need something. They have things that Jesus, they're not just hoping, but must attend to. It's why they've come all this way. And they have things that need to change, and they can't wait any longer. Think about how, so, how far some of them have come, and now they are falling all over themselves just to get to him. In fact, the language seems to say that they're falling on Jesus just to get to him. They're pressed around him. This isn't so much as a calm crowd as it's a desperate mob. So much so that Jesus, he realizes he needs to plot and exit. He grabs his disciples, and he says, Peter, Peter, bring the boat around. Peter, bring, bring the boat around even as he begins to compassionately heal again and again and again. <coughs> there we go. Again and again and again. Even as he compassionately begins to... <coughs> there it is. Compassionately heals them as they're desiring. This is worse than any Black Friday sale we've ever seen on the news. They, the, he knows, Jesus knows, that this crowd would crush him to get what they want. Many of us, again, are attracted, and we should be, to what Jesus offers. And God, in his mercy, sometimes provides it, doesn't he? I've seen people get on a stable financial footing in the church. I've seen some marriages find restoration. I've seen kids come back around. I've seen people find healing, find relief, after death. I found seen others find a new start. And yet over time, 
I've also observed that many of these people who came initially for those needs, those people who once were so grateful for Jesus' work in their lives, once he answered their prayer, they move on. They no longer need him. Or I've seen some who begin to turn bitter because God didn't show up like I thought he would. They, they tried to do what he wants, in fact, but their prayers went unanswered and they left confused and angry, saying to God, you know, okay, God, I, I tried. I really tried. And you didn't come through for me. The problem is, many people, they've made Jesus into a means to an end. Like someone who gets married so that they can have sex whenever they want. Now, many of us who are married know that that's hardly the case. Or think about a parent who only gets a phone call from their kid when their kid needs more money. For many people, Jesus becomes only a means to an end, a means to get what they really want, a means to get the thing that they are really convinced will save them. The crowd doesn't just desire what Jesus offers. It demands what Jesus offers. And this means, number three, the third mark, the crowd misses what Jesus offers. Again, out of desperation, a kind of desperation, I think that we really can relate to, the crowd presses forward. It presses forward so intent on getting what they came for that they threaten to crush Jesus in the process. In all of this, though, something stands out. You see, no one seems to actually notice Jesus. All they see is one who can fix their problem. None of them are wondering, what do these miracles actually reveal about the miracle worker? More than he has power, what does this say about his identity? In fact, the only ones who seem to be asking about his identity or calling it out are the demons that Jesus silences. You see these healings, these exorcisms, as much as the crowds were clamoring for them, they were never really the point, friends. Jesus' miracles, every one of them, wasn't simply for the miracle's sake. The miracles never really are for the miracle's sake. Otherwise, miracles would have been all that Jesus did. He would have gone town by town, clearing out the sickbeds. And yet, we find at many points in Mark's gospel that Jesus sometimes refuses to go into the towns. These miracles, these second chances, this much-needed relief, you see, all of this was about something more important, something more important than Jesus was offering them. Because Jesus, in fact, was offering them himself. The greatest problem, friends, isn't broken relationships. As much as we need Jesus to repair them, our greatest problem isn't loneliness. As much as we need God's enduring comfort, our greatest problem isn't chronic illness. As much as we need God to remake our broken bodies, our greatest problem is sin. And only God can bring rescue. The miracles, the signs of power, they're simply the exclamation point on the sentence, Jesus and only Jesus has the desire and the ability to save. God may have brought you here watching this online today or brought you a long time ago for, might have brought you for many reasons many needs that God in his mercy 
may choose to meet. But friends, God has done so each and every time that we might find the one thing that we need most, and that's Jesus himself. Let me ask you, honestly, is knowing and being known by Jesus what brings you to church? Is it what you're here for? Or is it something else? That thing that you've already determined that God, your, maybe your church, must provide or else you're out the door. What preferences, let me ask you, if unmet, would, be most, you most, would you most likely be to leave over? What if God chooses not to answer the prayer, your prayer, in the way that you expect? Friend, are you simply attracted to what Jesus offers you? Or is it Jesus that you want? Friend, C.S. Lewis once said that God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. You could say our hopes are not too grand, but too small. Too many of us, including me, we have small dreams for our lives. We've settled for appetizers when a feast has been set before us. We want miracles when what we need is Jesus. Some of us, again, have come for the signs of power and have pushed past Jesus on the way. Which leads us actually to the second part of our passage. The called. We talked about the three marks of the crowd. Let's talk about the called. Now, I'm sure this doesn't surprise you, but I at one point was considering very much uh, joining the army. I know, doesn't this physique just strike? Man, that guy should be going into the army. In fact, in college, I joined the Reserve Officer Training Corps, or ROTC, which allowed me to pay for school, and so far as I knew, would allow me to pay for medical school. Um, anyways, the training would begin every fall for something in ROTC called the Ranger Challenge. Um, basically, the varsity sport of ROTC, uh, which we could try out for, and there was tremendous pressure from my fellow cadets to uh, join. Of course, I mean, I couldn't say no, not when I was so desperate to be considered one of them. And so that meant that for five days a week, we were sweating on the college lawn together or ruck marching around the neighborhood surrounding campus together all before sunrise. And I was regretting every single minute of it. Seriously, what college student in their right mind gets up before 5 a.m. like voluntarily? But still, I didn't want to be a loser, and so there, was, there I was trying out for the team. And over the next three weeks of tryouts, though, what do you suppose happened as we spent all those days on the lawn sweating together? Well, less and less people started showing up at 5 a.m. I even tried to quit once or twice, having to convince myself with every push-up, this is worth it, this is worth it, this is worth it, is this really worth it? Until, after all, more and more began to drop off, and I had stayed, you know, and as I stayed, the longer I met it, I made it, the, the, uh, the my, bigger my head got, the taller that I walked on campus, and the more I looked down on all of those who had flaked, the more I s thought about them, you know, well, <laughs> I stayed, and they just, they couldn't, they couldn't stick it out, until I was well cut from the team. 
Let me ask you, are you the kind of person who sticks it out no matter what? Even if no one else is there, you're gonna be, no one's gonna call you a quitter. When the going gets tough, the tough get going, right? Uh, is this how we should think about discipleship? Is being a disciple, a life, lifelong follower or learner of Jesus, merely about outlasting all the flakes, more about sticking around when everybody else goes by the wayside? Not really at all, it turns out, actually. In fact, I want us to look at three marks of a disciple that might surprise us, three marks of the called. First, the disciples are called by Jesus. Some of us, again, see discipleship largely like volunteering for the army, almost as if God was wondering to himself in, he in heaven, you know, I've got this mission I really need done and I really need someone to do this. I mean, can I get a volunteer? Anyone? Anyone? I mean, I promise it's going to be a lot of fun. But you might even think of following Jesus as doing, some, doing God some kind of favor. And certainly we wouldn't put it that way, but some of us are pretty sure God is doing much better now that I'm on his team. Well, some of us, we think the opposite. Some people I know think to themselves, no chance God wants me on this team. You have no idea the kind of baggage I come with. I'd only make more of a mess. Trust me, you don't want me to volunteer. Only God isn't waiting for volunteers. The initiative does not lie with us at all. Instead, it says that Jesus called to him those he desired. Those he desired. He didn't call to him those who desired him. He called to him those he desired. Isn't that interesting phrasing? The only reason this means that disciples follow Jesus is not because they are more eager or more qualified or more capable than anyone else, not even because they were chasing him down. Quite the opposite, in fact. Disciples follow Jesus, not because they were chasing after Jesus. Disciples follow Jesus because Jesus himself has called them. The initiative always lies with Jesus himself. And I tell you what, Jesus then calls, who does he call? He calls the unexpected. Just think about some of the names that we find in the list of Jesus' disciples. You know, most of them we know very little about. Most of them are very ordinary. But I want us to consider some of the names that it does give special attention to. First, we have Peter. If you know anything about Peter, even though he's called the rock, it's what his name, is, what Peter means. He couldn't be less of a rock during Jesus' ministry and constantly sticking his foot in his mouth. And then eventually, he denies Jesus on Jesus's, at Jesus' most desperate hour. Then you have the brothers, the other part of his inner circle. J Peter, James, and John made up the inner three. James and John, who are called the, Boa, the Boanar, Boanerges. I pronounce, I practiced this before the sermon. The, Boanar, the Boanerges. Okay, maybe he's gonna, somebody's going to have to correct me on that next week. Regardless, these guys, these guys, this word literally means something like hothead or uh, loudmouths. <laughs> This, uh, this, uh, it could be, this is why it's they're called the Sons of Thunder. In fact, some of the memorable circumstances we have of them, uh, Jesus and his disciples are barred entry for, from a Samaritan town, and James and John say to Jesus, well, Jesus, can we just like call down fire from heaven on these guys? These Sons of Thunder. And then there's uh, Matthew. 
a former tax collector, which we've already read about in Mark's gospel. They're called uh, um, Levi, who is known to pad his own pocket um, in his former career with the hard-earned money of his fellow Jews. He was a sellout to their greatest enemy. He was in the employ of Rome itself. And Jesus calls him to be on their team. And then there is Simon the Zealot, one of many radicals who were known to stab Romans in the marketplace in secret, who saw as the, the only way to bring in God's kingdom, the only way to end their oppression was some sort of violent uprising. They were throwing the riots. And then add to, to top off all this list, Judas Iscariot. And in case we weren't already aware, Mark adds, you know that Judas who betrayed Jesus? Awesome. Pretty sure there are some leadership books that Jesus needs to read about who you should and should not have on your team. Especially if you want your vision to be a success. None of these men, let's just notice, has massive education, is a religious leader or scholar. Instead, Jesus gathers around him a ragtag assortment of lowlifes, of radicals, of blockheads. And yet, knowing full well of their failures, their lacks, and their coming betrayals, Jesus calls these men to be his formal apprentices, the apostles, the sent ones, the men that Jesus would make his closest and most trusted followers and the foundation pillars of the church itself. In fact, their number, 12, suggests that they would be, in fact, a, you could call them a new Israel. They would be the fulfillment of, uh, that God would bring to fulfillment all of the promises that he had made to his people through these kind of broken men. These would be the 12. Jesus makes something unexpected from the unexpected. Tell you what, this, this just makes sense of my own experience. When I look out on the people that God has called, man, they're just not who I'd expect. I mean, I love all of you, everyone who's watching this, but let's just be honest, particularly for you Christians out there, the Christians that are watching this were not exactly the cream of the crop, especially your pastor. None of us are doing God a favor. Just like my kids aren't doing me a favor when they volunteer to help me with dinner. I love to involve them. It's a joy, but it's going to mean a lot more work for me. When it comes to Jesus, it's, it's as if he intentionally uh, invites the last picks, the ones who would be more work for him, because those are the ones that he can show off most through. Disciples are called by Jesus, but second, they're also called to Jesus. Disciples are called to Jesus. Again, there's nothing wrong, friends, with being attracted to what Jesus offers. We should. But so often Jesus catches our attention with something we need so that we could finally see our greatest need. But unless God himself wakens us from what we've thought was our need and shows us our greatest need, unless he, in other words, takes the initiative in our lives to show us the truth, we're going to continue to make him into a means to an end. We're going to continue to run past Jesus to get the thing that we really want, the thing that we're convinced will save us. And in a sense, we're going to be stuck in a pattern of false worship. That's what the Bible calls it. Putting our trust in something that cannot save. 
something that we've put all of our confidence and identity in that will fail us looking to some relationship, some job, some goal, or some circumstance to save me while missing the only one who ever could. Notice the language of verse 13. Jesus didn't just call his disciples. What does it say? He called his disciples to him. In case we didn't get this, we need to look to verse 14. What does he say? He appointed the twelve, the apostles, so that they might be with him. This is enormously important, friends. This is saying so much more than they would be doing life together for a while. The essence of what this means is that a disciple of Jesus is not just called to be in service to Jesus. They're not just given tasks to do. They're not just called into service by Jesus. They're called to Jesus. Notice that again, Jesus didn't call them. It doesn't say that Jesus called them to the law, to obey the law. He doesn't just call them even to God, although certainly he was God. Jesus says he calls them to himself. You know, no other rabbi or teacher would say something like this. They would always, they would see themselves as a means to a different end. But Jesus doesn't see himself as a means to a greater good. He sees himself and himself and understands himself to be the greatest good. Nothing could compare to him. Nothing could be more worthy of our trust. Nothing could surpass him. Nothing could be more worth our worship. And so to be a Christian is to have your worship corrected, your trust corrected, to be called from false religion, false worship of other things, to instead locate your trust, your faith completely in Jesus alone. To be a Christian is to be called to Christ and then to be called Christ's own. The New City Catechism, like many catechisms, I don't know if you're familiar with these, are basically a, a form of instructing young children in the basics of the Christian faith. And this is derived from many older catechisms, and they pose questions which they provide the answers to. And the very number one question, where does, again, the essentials of Christian doctrine, the New City Catechism, like the Heidelberg before it, where does it begin in terms of instructing these little ones in the faith? Question number one, what is your only hope in life and death? Isn't that the question that we're asking? What is our only hope in life and death? How does it answer? That we are not our own, but belong both body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, before the gospel tells us what we must do, friends, it tells us who we are. We have been called to Jesus, and now we are bound up with him. He is not only the center of our worship, he is the center of our very identity. It could be that you're hearing this kind of news for the very first time. Or perhaps at this, at this moment, friend, I know God is at work in some of you. That for the very first time, you're realizing that you cannot save yourself. You've been attracted to Jesus before, but now Jesus is calling you to himself, to put your faith in him. Friend, would you turn to him even today? A Christian, Christians out there, let me ask you, have you lost this sense? Have you lost the sense of 
who you are called to and the sense of belonging to Christ? I have to tell you, sometimes I do. And when I do, my obedience, it just turns into something ugly. My obedience, all of a sudden, when I forget this identity, that I am bound up with Christ, that I belong in Him, belong to Him, body and soul, my obedience becomes actually something about proving myself to others, to God, or sometimes just to myself. I become obeying to derive my identity, but this actually gets my identity fundamentally backwards. I am bound up with Christ. As James Edward puts it, the discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but in what Christ can make of his disciples. Again, let me say that again. Discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but in what Christ can make of his disciples. Disciples are called by Jesus to Jesus, but they are also, number three, disciples are called to call others. Look at verse 14 with me. It tells us these apostles, these living pictures of what disciples would be, they were not just called to Jesus. Jesus then entrusts them with responsibility. Again, responsibility that he gives them. We must understand that it's nothing, nothing without this relationship. It will be done for the wrong reasons if the relationship is not there. But nonetheless, God not only calls disciples to himself, he does so because he intends to do work through them, because he has work to do through them. The, the, our passage splits these, this task actually into two tasks that, get, that Jesus gives the apostles to preach the gospel and to cast out demons. But actually, these two tasks are part of the same pa- pa- sorry, pa- same package. The more we read the Bible, we see that these are tied together. In other words, let me put this clearly, Jesus is calling his disciples not only to announce the gospel, but to demonstrate the gospel's power. The news of Jesus' kingdom is bad news for the kingdom of darkness and death. It is bad news for the kingdom of Satan. Its reign is over. His reign has come, and his followers would not just experience it, they would announce it, and they would watch the power that it has around them. They would watch its effects. Friends, this means that Christians disciples, because that's what every Christian is. Disciples aren't just fans of Jesus. They're not just attracted to him, something he gives them. They're not just, they're also not some sort of expendable labor force. No, by virtue of Jesus' death and his resurrection, Jesus has made Christians his fellow workers to do war with the powers of darkness by announcing the gospel and by drawing attention to it by whatever means necessary, by whatever means possible, by adorning and highlighting and drawing attention in their lives and their behavior and the kind of work that they do, the relationships that they have, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means that the gospel isn't just some mystery, some grand mystery left up to our own intuitions or feelings to make sense of. It means that sharing the gospel isn't actually supremely about sharing our testimony. Oh, that may may be a means. 
The gospel doesn't differ person to person. The gospel is a changeless message, which the Bible is very clear about, a message which can be articulated and understood, and it matters to every single generation and person we come in contact with, a message of God's saving activity through Jesus who lived, through Jesus who died, through Jesus who rose from the dead and was and ascended to the right hand of God the Father to reign over all things. Jesus who gave all everything so that we might have everything in him. Jesus who died to reconcile and restore sinners to God. Disciples are called to call others. Friends, you have neighbors, co-workers, and family members who are desperate for this good news. Desperate for some sense, some semblance of hope, from some peace to hold on to, for love that's not going to leave or forsake them. And we have this news. Some, I fear, call themselves Christians, but from the outside, it seems they seem more like the crowd than they do the called, insisting that Jesus merely meet my needs on my terms or else I'm going to find a church that will. Many of us have lost the sense of who we are now in Christ, and you need Jesus to reawaken this in you. After all, why in the world would we sit on our hands and bite our tongues when it comes to the opportunities to make sense of the gospel when we know what it means to be loved by him, called by him? Where would we be, after all, if somebody had not risked the conversation with us who had talked about the cross of Jesus Christ at sometimes cost to themselves? Do we really want to spend our lives trying to manipulate God into controlling our circumstances or to ride out our days in relative comfort when we have been made co-workers of Jesus Christ? Heirs of the news of life? We have been made God, God's fellow workers. Christians, you have been sent. This is our mission as a church. It's what we exist for. It's why we do everything here. Our mission is to make disciples because he made disciples. The question is, where has God sent you? Who in your life is he right now pushing you toward, moved you next door to, put in your family or friend group that you might make sense of this good news to them? That you might call another and another and another to life that is found in him. That they might call another and another and another to. Can you imagine what God might do in this church if we took him at his word? Believed that he wasn't done with us no matter what stage we are in or what, what our background is or what education we have? Are you willing, friends, to dream beyond ourselves, maybe for the very first time, or would you rather stay in the crowd? Disciples are called by Jesus to Jesus to call others. Let's pray. God, we come to you knowing that there's great risk in making you a means to an end. I've, I've done it. Everyone here has. Every time we've been drawn to something you offer, rec not recognizing the greatest thing you offer, which is yourself. Sometimes we don't trust that that's where our salvation is found, but that's the thing we most need. We need you. Yeah, our hope is we can't just convince ourselves of it. We need you to open our eyes. We need you to call us to the truth. We need you to 
bring life to the dead? Or what dead person hears? Or we, we see in here hints of, of what our job is as disciples, of this identity that disciples have in you. But we want to start by saying that many of us are in the crowd and need to be called. Would you call those who have, are hesitant to put their faith in Jesus Christ to trust you? To come for Jesus and not just what he offers. And for those of us who are Christians, would we find a fresh sense of our identity, that we are bound up with him? There's no need to work for your approval or for the approval of others to find a sense of identity through our obedience. That has been taken care of in the cross and in the perfect life of Jesus. Instead, Lord, would we obey out of gratitude, out of a sense of being so loved, out of being so enamored with the fact that we are made fellow workers of Jesus Christ, eager to use our days well, not wasting another one of them. Some of us, we need clarity to know who you've put in our lives, to be able to share the gospel with, to be able to make sense of it with. We might take the next step of obedience this week. We need to risk some discomfort, even in beginning to pray for more opportunities. Some of us, we just need breakthroughs. We've had so many conversations and, and we, it's just found so many deaf ears. Help us to become creative, to know if we've been unclear in what we've said, but that you would do what you can only do, call more to, to faith in Jesus Christ, that we might give you the glory and not take any ounce of credit to ourselves. And would our church be bound around this one mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and joy of all people. May that bleed into every program, every leadership choice, every decision we make, that that would be the mission we could not let up on or shut up about. Lord, that would this church, if we're known for anything, if we do anything, would it be that one thing? To call others to worship of God, to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We have no power for these things other than the cross that saved us, under the name that, has, that ours is bound up with. We pray all these things for Jesus Christ, for his sake. Amen.